Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So I thought I might start by getting you just to introduce yourself, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, Hi, everybody. Um, My name is Angus Thompson. I'm a pharmacist working in Tassie. I've lived in Tassie for 15 years. I do a range of things. Mainly my primary job is as a HMR pharmacist. I've been working in that space for around 10 years. But I also do some work as a lecturer in therapeutics um, at the University of Tasmania. And I'm also employed um, by Primary Health Tasmania as a pharmacist clinical editor on Health Pathways. A few little side hustles as well. I do a little bit of work for um, APC as a subject matter expert and sometimes also do some um, education and training with GP registrars. It's a nice mix and keeps me professionally stimulated and certainly very busy. Thank you. Um, excellent. I find it, um, so we're here today to discuss the current advocacy around the future funding of HMR into the 8th CPA. But perhaps we could start with a discussion about how the history of HMR funding and how this impacts the current situation. Sure. So um, obviously, since the inception of the HMR program, it's been funded through the CPA funding streams and obviously subject to Um, review and discussion and renegotiation every time the CPAs are renewed. Um, Obviously, there's been a few changes over the years, predating my time in Australia when the service first started. Um, I understand it was only through referral through community pharmacy and then the criteria were, were broadened to allow GPs to refer to accredited pharmacists directly. Um, And certainly from my experience, that's what the majority of GPs um, or very large number of GPs do do today. Um, Obviously, going back probably what now, eight, nine or 10 years ago, maybe even, um, we had the introduction of the cap of 20 um, patients per accredited pharmacist per month, which obviously was quite a disruptor to the um, to the service. And I think um, I certainly know it led to some good pharmacists um, quitting the industry because it was no longer a viable sole uh, business. Um, and, um, you know, I feel personally very strongly that that cap is unhelpful. It's not in, in the interests of patients. Um, you know, many patients need a timely review and in certain areas, particularly where there's a limited number of providers, um, it does mean some patients wait longer than they need to to get a review. Um, And then obviously the last few years, we've seen some further evolution um, with the good news of a relaxation in the cap. So out from 20 to 30 per month, which was very welcome for busy providers. Um, And obviously the introduction also of telehealth reviews um, during COVID, which was a fabulous um, change to the service rules, I believe. Um, And I think most credential pharmacists would agree. Um, It meant keep providing the service during those tough COVID times. It also meant that for some clients, um, um, it was great to be able to do follow-ups by telephone as well. Um, and that, of course, was the other change. The option to provide follow-ups at all um, was was a new development. And I think a very, very worthwhile one, because I think certainly from my experience, and I know many other credentialed pharmacists, 
a lot of the patients we see are really complex. Um, one of my regular referring GPs has, has often said to me, she said, I hope you don't mind, but I, I get you to see all my most complex patients. She said, the ones that give me a headache. Uh, and you don't fix those medication management problems with one visit. Um, so having the ability to provide a follow-up or two and build that rapport or develop further that rapport with the patient, and provide ongoing support um, to the patient, often their carers as well, um, is great. And that's, um, so we've, I guess we've seen the service evolve. We've seen some steps back with the introduction of CAPS, some steps forward with the introduction of follow-ups and telehealth, and then some steps back again with the um, cessation of the telehealth option. But now we face, um, I think, guess a, a, a bigger challenge is just the future viability of the service. Um, and maybe we'll discuss that further as we go through the podcast. So can I find out, so telehealth and follow-ups have been the two latest changes. And mm. can I ask a little bit more about follow-ups? How many follow-ups are you able to do? Is it specific to a patient? And have you been utilising those more so? Yeah, so um, we, you, we're authorised to do up to two follow-ups with each um, patient we see within a nine-month period of the initial review. Um, so they're remunerated at a half the initial rate and a quarter of the initial rate for the, the second follow-up. Um, they're intended to follow up on medicines management issues which were identified at the original review. So it's not another full new mini review. And sometimes that's hard. So for complex patients, particularly if let's say six months has evolved, it can almost be like another full review. And that is sometimes a bit difficult to manage when, um, you know, what the the expectation is. Um, so my own practice, um, I like to get, I approach them in different ways who are relatively straightforward. The issue that triggered the referral is, I'm reasonably confident is resolved with that first review. And in those situations, um, I would usually not expect to do a, a follow-up and, and don't. Um, there are some patients who are really, really complex, who when you're with them, you know pretty darn well they're going to need a follow-up. And I'll often discuss that with the patient and in the majority of cases, they will acknowledge that it would be good to have that follow up. So we have that discussion up front. So when I phone them in a few months time, they they're expecting that call. And then there are others who I also sometimes partly put it back to the GP and say, you know, let me know if you want my in, in ongoing input with the care of this patient because I'm able to provide follow ups. For me, I I pretty much cap I, I cap out every month with full reviews. I have for the last two years worked at absolute full capacity with full reviews, um, doing 30 a month. But I probably only do on average about six follow-ups a month. Um, and that's partly, I'll be honest, my own capacity. Um, but also is that there's some patients for whom you think they will need a follow-up. And it turns out things have gone smoothly. Maybe the changes that were made um, have been implemented without any dramas. The patient's got a good response, no side effects, et cetera. Um, and you found them and, and things are going so well and they don't need a follow-up. So um, I think it's a really good option. Um, and I think it would be, you know, it's it's really enhanced the service. We're no longer just seen as like a fly-in, fly-out <laughs> um, person. We're, we're there as somebody who has a sort of ongoing connection with the patient. Um, 
And obviously there's always the option for a GP to re-refer um, for a new full review. And indeed for some patients that is is needed because, you know, I think of a couple of patients I've seen multiple times, one of them who's 42. Yes, I said 42 medicines on their GP referral. Um, you know, those people typically need a full new referral periodically because the complexity of the the health conditions and the medicines they're on, a follow-up is not an adequate service to simply make that. They need a full, full new review, in my opinion. And with the telehealth, is that still utilised as much? No, so sadly telehealth, um, the option to provide telehealth reviews and follow-ups was discontinued, I think, 31st of December last year. Um, I think the argument for that was that obviously we were past peak COVID um, and um, so there was no longer that need for that physical separation um, from an infection control point of view. But I think it's fair to say that many accredited pharmacists had found the telehealth option really useful um, for, for patients. I didn't do many telehealth reviews myself. I, I personally believe that visiting people in their own home is the optimal experience. Um, you build a connection with people. Um, you see things in the home around how medicines are managed, which it's not the same doing that by phone. Um, most patients who I did a telehealth review with weren't sufficiently tech savvy or didn't feel comfortable using Teams or Zoom or FaceTime. So it was literally a telephone conversation. And I, I feel it, it can be feel a bit more like an interrogation when you're just having to ask so many questions, whereas you, when you sat with someone in their home with the medicines on the table in front of you, you can see things and you know it's a much more natural conversation. That said, I think the demise of the option to provide telehealth is 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 a real shame because for some clients it really was a good option. And I think for some patients, particularly those who live rurally and remotely, the reality is providing a face-to-face -face follow up is just not viable. When you think that a second follow-up, particularly, you know, the fee for that is $55. If you've got to drive somewhere, sit with a patient, drive home, write a report, that really is not viable. And even for some patients, a first review, sorry, first follow-up, um, again, having to do that face-to-face -face, um, is, is pushing the limits of viability um, for, for providers. So telehealth was a great option um, for the right client at the right time. And it's a shame we've, we've, we've lost that option, I'm afraid. I'd love it to be reinstated. It'd be great. There is currently a petition that it, um, the petition that is currently circulating asking for guaranteed ongoing funding for HMRs. What is the best case scenario that HMR pharmacists would like to see? Yeah, I mean, I'm, my feeling about ongoing funding is I'm mostly going to describe my personal perspective, but I think it's probably fair to say it's shared by quite a lot of other credentialed pharmacists who I've had conversations with. Um, I mean, the, the CPA arrangement in many ways works well. I mean, I personally find using the, for example, the PPA as a claiming mechanism, very, very efficient. Um, that's great. Um, but the problem is, is that every time CPA is renegotiated, it's obviously a very crowded environment for funding for pharmacy services. And I mean, my personal perspective is that the money that's allocated to the HMR and indeed the RMMR programs is a very small proportion of, of money of the total. And 
there isn't a strong voice at the negotiating table where HMRs and RMMRs are the passion for those who are negotiating. Um, it obviously covers a very wide range of pharmacy services. And so there's a risk, my, my feel, and I know I'm not alone in feeling this, that the voice representing accredited pharmacists and the GPs who use the HMR and RMMR service and the patients who receive these reviews is a very quiet voice. And there's a risk that it gets drowned out amongst bigger ticket items. Um, so whilst in many ways the arrangement is good, um, the problem is, is the fact that CPA negotiations come around every five years. And this is not the first time that there seems to have been a threat to the future of the funding. And it's immensely frustrating, I think, for providers to live by agreement to agreement, to not be able to um, have some surety. Um, I've been a pharmacist for 33 years and I've worked in two continents, in community, in hospital, in general practice, in academia, in regulatory sort of governmental type roles, um, now as a consultant. Um, and I find my personal view is that providing in-home clinical medication reviews is for me probably the ultimate definition of pharmacists practicing to full scope. Um, you know, which is something that there's buy-in from professional organisations, even the minister himself, as well as individual pharmacists. So I find it quite ironic that we have these discussions every few years around, are we going to have a service to provide? Um, which is, let's just use the word disappointing. What would I think would be ideal? Well, ideal would be to have indexed payments um, for the service, which we haven't had under seven CPA. Um, a bit more flexibility around the way that we can provide services. So relaxation or even abolition of the cap, permission to do telehealth um, again, um, a bit more flexibility and reasonable um, reimbursement for rural and remote reviews. Um, you know, the payment for travel is not intended to cover the entire costs, but it is a barrier to rural and remote patients receiving reviews. So there's a few things that would be great. Um, firstly, continuation of the service as we know it, um, with funding that rises in line with cost of living, um, flexibility, um, which helps us better meet patients' needs. Um, but I think there's also a bigger question is, is this the right funding stream? Um, if we are gonna have these threats and discussions and need to mount campaigns every few years. Should we be thinking about another funding stream? And there are a number of us who believe that um, MBS funding um, would be a good alternative. I mean, I'm not saying that's, um, you know, all plain sailing, but I think it would at least separate us from the, the crowded space of pharmacy service funding provision that goes with being tied to the CPA. Another thing which has been brought up by a number of pharmacists, particularly those who work in areas uh, servicing rural and remote patients, is that that the whole viability of providing services in those communities, which are often some of our most disadvantaged, disadvantaged communities with poor GP services, often indigenous communities and others um, where the needs are really high. Um, the, the current arrangements around um, travel, 
and caps and so on can make it really difficult to to viably meet the needs of those patients. So I think that's the other thing we, we really would like to see is a little bit more patient centeredness into the way that the, that the service is funded to enable us to best meet patients needs, because at the moment it doesn't always meet patients needs as well as we'd like. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's something that would be really good to see. Can I ask for feedback on the petition? Um, how has it been received and what feedback have you? Yeah, yeah so um, so the petition um, got off to a great start. Um, you know, we were up to a thousand signatories within a few days, as you'd expect with the petition. It, it's leveled off. Um, we've had a lot of um, good support from many, many accredited pharmacists, other pharmacists, um, indeed many GPs and um, patients and patients carers. Um, I think the, it's often quite difficult to to gauge. People often I think a little bit suspicious about petitions, and I've I've certainly had a couple of comments made that people are a bit wary about putting their name to something, which is really interesting. Even some accredited pharmacists. Um, but um, he was great. Got off got off to a great start, as I say. Leveled off. It would be lovely to to get a bit more traction again with it. Um, and certainly people who I talk to are very, very supportive of, of what we're trying to achieve with the petition, um, including many patients indeed. Because um, I feel that, and this is really sad to say this, but I have a feeling there's a little bit of fatigue maybe in government around the profession at the moment. Um, and that's sad to have to say that. And it's, it's but the reality is obviously we've had a, the, the whole issue of 60 day dispensing with all the ramifications of that, which are so profound to the industry. Um, I think it's almost a case of, oh, it's pharmacists again about something else. What do they want now? <laughs> so in a way, our timing is really bad because, um, you know, we're coming on the back of another really important topic being discussed with with um, providers. Um, and I, for that reason, I think it's particularly important with the petition that we get patients and we get GPs and we get carers um, involved um, and demonstrating their support by signing the petition. This isn't just about pharmacists who are accredited, who are concerned about their livelihood. Those pharmacists are also concerned about the patients who they care for. Um, but if the government can hear from the patients and carers themselves and the GP community about how much they value the service, that will hopefully make government listen and um, or make them more likely to listen um, that this has got a broader ramifications if this service does not continue in a sustainably funded way. So you've mentioned um, GPs and patients and mm. having their voices to support HMRs. Um, mm. Are you how would they be utilised? Um, I've I've certainly had conversations with GPs who I've worked with, some of whom I've worked with for 10 years and who are just flabbergasted that this we can even be having to consider having this conversation. They are, why on earth would this happen? Um, and, you know, and the realisation that we do live in a, a, a funding, we operate within a funding envelope, which is a very crowded space. Um, and they're a bit shocked to hear that. Um, so I know GPs who have written to local members of parliament. I know GPs who've made representations through their own organisations, the AMA and the RACGP. You know, let's not forget the AMA in their submission to the review of the national medicines policy a few years ago, 
made a very strong statement around needing more medication reviews. Um, you know, we've got um, support, you know, you look at other governmental departments even, the NDIS, Polypharmacy Guidance, recommends clients have, uh, so participants have reviews. DVA through Veterans Mates recommend that veterans have reviews. So you've got these all these different bodies, some representing patients, some even representing governmental departments who acknowledge the value of what we do. So um, you'd like to think that somebody with a, would sit back and go, OK, there's a lot of strong voices here. There's clearly some value in this service. Um, this is something that we should be looking to make or put on a sustainable footing. Um, I mean, the other question I sometimes come back to is, if we consider a GP referral for a HMR as seeking a specialist's opinion, and let's be honest, we are the medication experts, we go to see people in their home to provide expert clinical advice around the use of medicines. No other referral system from a GP limits how many patients that provider can see in a given time period. That provider's own work life balance or whatever may limit it, but we're not saying cardiology sex can only see 30 patients per month. We're not saying this rheumatologist can only see 30 patients a month. So it's just ridiculous, in my opinion, that we have this cap. Um, and um, I think, again, that's just another element of the service which needs to be challenged. Um, we appreciate that there will needs to be some checks and balances in, in the service. Um, but nonetheless, the way it's set up at the moment frustrates both providers as pharmacists, GPs as referrers, and the patients and carers who benefit from, from having the service. So you've mentioned a little bit about sustainable funding. Mm. So I'm not sure if you had any more that you wanted to say about, um, so is the CPA the best funding model for HMR going forward? If the CPA funding model um, was, if we didn't have to have these discussions every five years um, with you know, significant threats to the service because it's crowded out through discussions around other things, if we didn't have that, I think the CPA funding model makes a lot of sense. Um, however, the reality is we do have this perennial discussion that comes up time and time again. So I think the time is, is ripe now to have a serious look at other funding models. Um, and the MBS as one is one which has significant support from a number of people um, to take us out of that um, environment of the CPA, um, to put us on a similar footing to other healthcare professionals who have access to the MBS. Um, you know, if you think of the, the different providers who do, I mean, a lactation can consultant can um, claim from MBS for a consult. Why, why can't a home medicine review pharmacist claim from MBS. It's, it strikes me as a very um, inequitable system and one that's, um, we, we really need to look at that as a funding model, I believe, moving forward. Why do you think the risks for HMR funding have come in the past and persist into the future? Yes, it's a good question, really. Why, why do we have these questions asked about funding? I think there's a few things. Um, one is the fact that it's a, a crowded space for funding um, with, you know, obviously dispensing fees and a range of other professional services um, funded through CPA. The other question which sometimes comes up, and I'll be honest, this, <laughs> this irks me a little bit, is, you know, do we provide value for money? So 
let's just take a step back. We're asking, does a consultation with a specialist professional provide value for money? It's a fair question taken in isolation. Do we ask whether a consultation with a cardiologist or even a GP or anybody individually as a professional provides value for money? We don't. So I think it is interesting that we have this, these double standards where we are asked to um, prove that we provide value for money when other healthcare providers who do a consultation with a patient don't have to provide value for money. There is an assumption that if patients consult with a specialist, there's value, whether that's a GP specialist or whether it's a disease specific specialist like say a cardiologist or a respiratory physician. So why do we have to answer to that question when no one else does? Controversial, I agree, but I think it's an elephant in the room which needs to be aired. The other thing is, if we get down to the nitty gritty of money, if we reluctantly accept that we have to be cost effective, and you know, we appreciate, we do live in a limited cash envelope. From my experience, I think I save the medical benefit, sorry, the health system of Australia more money on average than I cost it. Um, very frequently recommendations involve ceasing a medicine that's no longer required. Um, reducing a medicine that carries a risk of medicines misadventure that could cause a hospitalisation. We could look at ceasing, recommending cessation of supplements which have no evidence base and bring no direct benefit to the patient. We could look at combining medicines into combination products which actually save money not only for the um, PBS but also significant money for the patient themselves. And then there's simple housekeeping and education things we do. One classic example springs to mind for me of a gentleman who I saw a few years ago who'd misunderstood instructions from his endocrinologist. He'd just been started on insulin and had been told to use a new needle every day. He interpreted a new needle every day as he uses each Rhizodeg pen once, injecting 10 units, throwing it away with 290 units still in it. Through a HMR, clarification was provided as to what we mean by a new needle. Um, that's four and a half thousand dollars a year of Medicare money potentially saved. Never mind him only going to the pharmacy approximately once every eight months rather than once every 25 days. And so you've got simple housekeeping things like that, streamlining, rationalising um, things which help patients, um, save money for patients and frequently save money and large amounts of it for the health system. So yes, we may not have robust cost effectiveness data but speak to accredited pharmacists uh, and the majority will tell you they'll have, all have their own stories as to how what we do um, saves money as well as having direct clinical benefits for patients. So I think there's a number of reasons why we, why we, we face these threats. I think there's also some, um, we don't seem to have support for the service across all professional groups and organisations, which is a great pity because I think when you speak to grassroots pharmacists in whatever sector they're working, most of them are aware of the benefits that HMRs and indeed RMMRs can provide. So um, it's interesting. There's lots of reasons um, and why I think we have these discussions and threats to the service. Um, and I feel some of it's inconsistent and inequitable with other um, health services that exist. Thank you. And I thought I'd ask um, what your views were of the use of accredited pharmacists in other settings, such as aged care, disability care and general practice. 
Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many roles for accredited pharmacists, which, um, you know, often sit comfortably and, and often done alongside um, HMR work. So, yeah, many HMR pharmacists are also providers of RMMRs and obviously the minister's announcement last year around the changing to the funding model um, around um, embedded pharmacists um, still doesn't seem to have, we don't seem to have much surety about what's going on there, which again is, is, is extremely unfortunate for those working in that space. And um, for those in disability care, um, there's quite a lot of um, NDIS providers, for example, operating group homes, um, who are very aware of, of the potential benefits for medication reviews and often act as advocates for their participants to get reviews. And I've certainly seen an increase in the number of requests to see um, people living with disability um, in recent years. Um, and then the whole general practice pharmacist role. Wouldn't it be fabulous if, if every general practice in Australia had access to an embedded pharmacist? Hands up, I have to admit, I am biased. I spent nine years in the UK working in roles of that type. Um, probably a slightly different focus. The NHS obviously has a, a quite a different way of operating, but nonetheless, you know, the benefits of having embedded pharmacists around quality use of medicines, education, direct patient activities, um, just a fabulous asset to the health system if we could get that off the ground. The thing, the thing I just wonder is, I sense there may be some people who perceive if GP practices all had an embedded pharmacist, and obviously it would be pro rata with the number of GPs one assumes, there seems to be an assumption that that would eliminate the need for HMRs and RMMRs. And I could not agree, disagree more profoundly. I think that's completely wrong. If you look at the average number of patients who attended a typical GP practice and how many are at risk of medicines misadventure, um, it would only be possible for a very small number of those people to be serviced by the in-practice pharmacist doing an in-practice review. Um, and obviously there's no funding model for that at the moment at least. So I think it's important to recognise that it's potentially complementary to the role of HMR and RMMR and disability care pharmacists. Um, and there may be people who do a little bit of both. But I think we need to be very clear that and whilst we would love a funding stream for GP practice pharmacists, and I know many GP practices would love there to be one, um, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't see that as a as it's not an alternative to um, HMR and RMMR work. I think the two complement each other really nicely. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, just reflecting on, I've done over 2000 HMRs over the last 10 years and it's extremely rare to do a HMR where you don't leave the patient's home knowing that you've done something helpful. In some cases it's a phenomenal amount. Um, in other cases it might just be a simple thing around just education around a patient understands why they're taking what they're taking. They're reassured that the way that they're managing their medicines and some of these things are quite sort of intangible benefits. Um, when you've you know, identified someone taking four antithrombotics who's got a history of peptic ulcer disease and not taking a PPI due to misunderstandings around communication at the transition of care, those sort of big clinical ticket items like that, they stick in your memory forever. Um, and But so often it's, it's the more subtle things. And the thing which gets me every time, and it's, it's happened twice today, before recording this, I've done three HMRs today and two of those three patients 
in their own words, basically said, how come no one knows about this service? Somebody recently used the word secret service to me. It's just an unknown, people say. And I find that just staggering, but also very sad that we have a, a nationwide body of, you know, a couple of thousand pharmacists who are accredited. We've got thousands of GPs referring for this service and we're only scratching the surface of quality use of medicines um, in the community by providing, you know, clinical reviews. Wouldn't it be great if we had a service which was not limited, where people who really needed this service could access it, where we had greater uptake um, in the community and it was no longer a secret service? You know, we have 250,000 hospital admissions a year due to medicines misadventure, significant proportion of those potentially preventable. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a crying shame that this service is not optimised as broadly as it should be. Um, but the first challenge we've got is to fight for the service to survive and then build a more sustainable footing for it in the future. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.